for six weeks we've been with the people of Israel. We've received the book of Leviticus as they did, and we've been learning how to do life with God. It's like we got to watch home movies of the people of Israel. Several hundred years collapsed into that short clip. And we continue again this week, how do we do life with God? I want to start with a question, not one you necessarily have to raise your hand and answer, but just to get us thinking. Have you ever considered the cycle or the flow that we live our lives in? Um, one of my siblings was a public accountant for years, and her life revolved around April 15th. Or maybe it's the retailer who the entire year builds toward the Christmas shopping season, or um, college football fans who look toward January or no wait, some of them after last night will be making other plans. <laughs> I'm a Buckeye, we finish next week, we're suspended, so don't think I'm, don't think I'm getting cocky. When I was a little girl, I became a baseball fan, and I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan, and it just so happened I became a fan during the 1972 World Series where the Oakland A's beat the Reds. And I remember sitting there as the coverage ended, and I got out my baseball cards and shredded every Oakland athletic. If I had hung on to them, we'd all be rich now. But I was devastated, but then I learned there's a flow to the baseball season. And every year at spring training, hope comes again. And you journey through this year, the all-star break, you retool a little bit, and then into the postseason. And there have been postseasons that were good for my Reds. This year's was not one of them. Three games in a row go poorly, and it's not one of your best post-seasons. But it seems that in many areas of our lives, there's a rhythm to the calendar. And we live by these cycles, so to speak. This weekend, as we finish in Leviticus, we will get to learn about the rhythm or the cycle that God put into place. And it, it was intended for his people to always be able to look back at his faithfulness in the past while being positioned for his future acts in their lives. A few weeks ago, Brian taught us about the system of animal sacrifice, and that was designed to help the people get right with God. This weekend, with Sabbath and feasts, we learn how to stay right with God, how to keep in step with God. God has this cadence that he's putting into place, and week after week, year after year, generation after generation, God's people could remain in step with him. His calendar for their lives would enable them to see his faithfulness in the past, while being ready for his future work. 
We'll be in Leviticus 23, and that's page 201 in the Bible in the rack there in front of you. And as we're getting ready for that, would you join me as we ask God's help this morning? Lord, we come to you and we cry out with our need that you would be our teacher. Will you speak to each one of us in a personal way that we would know your plan for us in this day and, and in this life? And we thank you in advance for how we know you care and will show us the way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. These festivals, they crop up throughout the Bible, but here in Leviticus 23, we have the Sabbath and seven festivals in chronological order. So it will be a nice, concise presentation of them. God tells Moses, get everyone together and tell them to bring their calendars. And then verse 3, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It is the Lord's Sabbath day, and it must be observed wherever you live. The basic makeup of the calendar for God's people would be six days for work, one day for rest. Six days for work, one day for rest. This pattern was first seen at creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day God rested from all his work of creation. It's interesting to note that time, a measurable unit of one day, was the very first thing God ever labeled holy. The seventh day would be a day in a class by itself. Now imagine Moses and all the people gathered there They've been in slavery for 400 years, working seven days a week. They were conscripted workaholics. Their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, their great-great-grandparents, on and on and on it went for longer than any of them could remember. There may not even have been a point of reference in their lives about a day of rest. But if they followed God's instruction, those who worked would know a break was coming. The definition of burnout would be removed from their dictionary. Husbands and wives would know that on that one day each week, they would have opportunity to connect. People from the community who felt isolated would always have the hope that that day for fellowship was just around the corner. Week after week after week, those who had been in slavery, putting their noses to the grindstone, would be given opportunity to stop and smell the roses. Throughout the community, men and women, boys and girls, they've gathered, they've been told to open up their calendars and enter 52 times Sabbath, a day of rest, 
a day for holy assembly. Now imagine some of the issues they would give back as reasons for not holding the Sabbath. If I break my momentum, I'll never get it back. You think I can rest with all these kids? The good Lord gave me this energy, so I'll honor him by never quitting. But what God had instituted in Genesis to this very people, he reiterated in Exodus. Exodus 31, 13. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so you may know I am the Lord who makes you holy. In Genesis, God blessed the Sabbath day. And then in Exodus, he seems to bless the person who would receive the Sabbath day. There was a covenantal symbolism to it. Every week, they were to stop and rest. And that weird break in the action would remind them that they were God's people, that he was the one who would make them holy. They didn't have to neurotically work, work, work to try to make themselves holy. Going full speed, never stopping, work, 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 that's the life they would have known in Egypt. And God doesn't want them to live like slaves anymore. Over time, some religious leaders took this gift of Sabbath and they added their own manipulative, peculiar rules to it. Hundreds of them, literally. And in the New Testament, some of those leaders confront Jesus because his disciples were seeming a bit too free in the way they carried themselves on the Sabbath. And to those accusers, Jesus replied in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Jesus made it clear that people weren't to be slaves, they weren't to be in bondage to the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was given as part of a benefits package to them. I don't know all of you well enough to know, but I know myself, and I'm not by nature a Sabbath taker. There was a time in my life not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was sitting in a chair at home, and I kept sitting, and I kept sitting, and it was actually feeling pretty good, and so I kept sitting. And pretty soon when I decided I'm going to do this for a while today, I got up and went over and closed the blinds because somewhere in me was a sickness and I didn't want anyone driving by to look in and know that I was just sitting. There's something about accomplishing, producing, achieving. There's something about activity. It keeps a lot of us moving, moving, moving. And if you're like that, the Bible tells you there are six days for you. Most of the calendar is yours. But God called the seventh day holy, a day of rest, a day of holy assembly. 
Right now in my life, there isn't a lot of rest. I've got three young kids and I'm not making excuses. I'm telling you that there's a reality to my life and I'm guessing there's a reality to yours. And as we think of this concept of Sabbath, probably all of us bump into what is real in our lives that would hinder or keep us from it. But what if we just began to take small steps? What if we just began to try? What might it look like? I know a couple of things for me. Um, I would cook or pre prepare extra food so that the next day on the Sabbath there wouldn't be work of that kind. I would think ahead and do that. Or in my world, there are mountains of laundry that never stop. I could just make a plan that on the Sabbath, no matter what anybody gets anywhere on themselves, there would be no laundry. There's this organization. It's pretty fascinating, actually. They're called Reboot. This is from an article that was in the Statesman maybe about a month ago. And they've started the Sabbath Manifesto. A call to unplug one day a week to find solitude or to simply take a day of rest with family or friends. This Sabbath manifesto was inspired by the traditional Jewish Sabbath, but aimed at people from any background who are encouraged to unplug one day, any day of the week. These are really smart think tank type people. They operate by 10 principles, and they range from avoid technology, connect with loved ones, get outside, find silence, and they've created an undo list, and they will email it every Friday with ideas for conversation topics, readings, local outings, and creative endeavors to ease the time away from technology and help make the day better. And they actually have activities going on in New York, LA, and San Francisco. The big city people um, came up with a great idea, or wait. God came up with a really great idea. Sabbath, rest, a day for holy assembly. It isn't there to shame us. We aren't to be enslaved to it, but it's a gift to us. And I wonder, if you opened up your 2013 calendar, what would it be like for you 52 times to mark Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of for holy assembly. God's people were to march to the beat of his drum, not a random cadence that forms itself as we react to what comes and goes. This rhythm of Sabbath in God's people's weeks, with that in place, he presented his seven feasts. They weren't so much all-you-can-eat buffets, as they were appointed times throughout the year for his people. They were positioned across the calendar to keep his people in step 
with him. And like the Sabbath would be to every week, the seven feasts would be to every year. The remainder of Leviticus 23 describes them, and you can learn more about them in Exodus and Deuteronomy. We won't do that this morning, but you can know that's, that's there. Leviticus 23, verse 4. In addition to the Sabbath, these are the Lord's appointed festivals, the official days for holy assembly that are to be celebrated at their proper times each year. God gave these feasts, they were his, and he gave them to his people. They were prearranged appointments to be written into the calendar between God and his people. Seven of these feasts, four of them in the spring and three of them in the fall. And every year the people would mark these dates in their calendar and they'd be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past and they would be looking for his future work. We'll only be able to just scratch the surface of what they were, but hopefully we'll get a better idea of God's heart and what he was trying to bring to the lives of his people. The spring festivals began with Passover, verse five. The Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. Passover brought with it imagery of redemption. It was a one day annual commemoration of when God redeemed his people from slavery. This day would be the first day of the rest of their lives and annually they would celebrate it. In Egypt, they were told to smear or spread the blood of a lamb over their doorpost. And when they did that, according to God's commitment to them, that very night, the firstborn male in all of Egypt was struck dead. But God's people were passed over. They were protected by the blood of the lamb. And year after year after year, when they celebrated Passover, they would be reminded of their own redemption. The next one, verse 6. On the next day, the 15th day of the month, you must begin celebrating the festival of unleavened bread. This festival to the Lord continues for seven days, and during that time, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. This festival brought with it the notion of sanctification or being cleaned and set apart by God. That very last night in Egypt, they were told to get ready. Basically, they were told, get your bag and get ready. There wasn't even time to put yeast in the bread. There was no time for it to rise. And year after year after year, when they celebrated that night that they left in the dark, to get out of Egypt, they would remember that God had set them apart. Every year during the time of this festival, they would prepare their homes by sweeping out every bit of yeast or leaven. In the Bible, yeast often represents sin. It's this imagery of even a small bit of it impacts the whole lump of dough. And God's people would forever be reminded they were to be holy. God wanted to set them apart. He wanted to 
free them from sin. And year after year after year, they would remember he had sanctified them. Verse 10, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you and you harvest its first crops, bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. This was the feast or the festival of first fruits, and it carried with it the idea of promise, God as promise keeper. Before they even entered the new land, God told them, when you get there and when you get into your new world and you mark off the rows and you plant a garden, don't even eat a kernel or a grain until you've cut the first of it and given to me. First fruits symbolized the beginning of the harvest, and leaning into it was their way of demonstrating faith that they would trust God's promise to complete the harvest. Every year when they celebrated this, they were reminded of God as their promise keeper. And the final festival in the spring, verse 15 from the day after the Sabbath, the day you bring the bundle of grain to be lifted up as a special offering, that was what we just talked about with first fruits. Count off seven full weeks. Keep counting until the day after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days later, then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. This feast became known as the Feast of Weeks, and very simply, it got its name because it was the one that they counted off the weeks. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it's called Pentecost, and that's a more familiar name probably to most of us. This was a lavish time of thanksgiving. Um, the, the passage in Leviticus goes on to describe the sacrifice of multiple fine male animals. The people's futures were tied up in these livestock. It would be like if you or I owned a Kentucky Derby horse or a Triple Crown winner, and instead of using it for our own benefit, we would offer it to God because we trusted him to always provide. The annual celebration for them of the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, it would always remind them at this time of our bountiful harvest when we realize how much we have we acknowledge that the origin of all of it is from God. Four feasts happening in the springtime of their year, all rooted in the people's history. Year after year, memories and emotions would be shared and they would bubble up to the surface again. And when they relived their story, it included slavery and wandering. And it would always point them to God. Imagine being a child growing up in this kind of an environment, hearing the stories, watching the grown-ups. They relive the dramatic events. What a place God had in family history. The entire clan stopped and focused on God. Stories of redemption, the removal of sin, stories of learning that all you possess comes from God. God established this cycle of feasts and he set the course for his people's calendar and he was positioning them in a grand, grand story. 
to observe these feasts year after year would remind them of his work in the past and it would point them eagerly in anticipation to what his next work would be. What would it be like for you if you set aside a day each year and you just celebrated your own redemption? At our house, something simply we've done with our daughter. Each year in April, we commemorate the day that she invited Jesus into her heart. Just right there at the dinner table, we may give her a book or something as a gift, but we want redemption to be known as something big. And what about a whole week set aside to focus on how God is sanctifying you, how he is removing sin from your life, or perhaps a time of focus begging him still yet to keep removing sin. Imagine what your year would be like if year after year after year, you, if I, if we did this sort of thing, if we focused some of our attention and reminded ourselves what a promise keeper God is. And like this coming Thursday, our grand day of Thanksgiving, Will we stop and in the midst of noticing the bounty we have, will we declare that we know God is the originator of it all? That's the idea of what God was putting into place for his people. Generations later, um, more than a thousand years later, the spring feasts had their ultimate fulfillment. It was on Passover that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified and he secured redemption for all. It was during the festival of the unleavened bread that the body of Jesus was put into the grave and that removed sin's grip forever. And the ultimate fulfillment of first fruits was when Jesus raised from the dead, promising that many, 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 many more of us would never know the decay that death would bring. And the Feast of Weeks, known as Pentecost, described in Acts chapter 2, had its fulfillment when the Holy Spirit, God himself, came to dwell in his people in a personal way signifying the harvest is being made complete. You and I are not so different from the people of Israel, realizing God's work in our past points us forward to what he will do still future. We're positioned in the middle of this story when we live in the reality of these feasts. We become a focused, a celebrating people. Four feasts realized and three more yet to be. They happened in the fall of the year. Chapter 23, verse 24. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. On the first day of the appointed month in early autumn, you are to observe a day of complete rest. It will be an official day for holy assembly, a day commemorated with the loud blasts of a trumpet. This feast of the trumpet was a day for readiness. 
It was a day of rest, an official day for assembly, and the purpose was to orient everyone to God. That trumpet would blast, and the people would get ready, for they knew the day of atonement was coming again. And verse 28 describes the day of atonement. Do not work do no work during that entire day because it is the day of atonement when offerings of purification are made for you, making you right with God. Steve taught us about this last week. The day of atonement was the day every year that their sins would be covered. All the people's sins would be put on that animal. And Steve described that at this annual day of atonement, like deodorant to body odor, the stink of their sin was covered. And then we wait for the ultimate fulfillment of this when there is not even any more stink. And the seventh and the final feast, verse 42. For seven days you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This was the festival of tabernacles or booths, um, the festival of shelters. And it carried with it the symbolism of going from the temporary to the permanent. And year after year after year, they would gather palm branches or tree branches and they would build these little lean-tos, and although they now owned real estate, they would come out of their homes, they would live once again in these tent-like things and commemorate, we come from a people who were sojourners, and we now have been, by God, brought into a place of full resident, full citizenship. And year after year after year, they would remember where they'd come from, and the status they enjoyed because of God. These three festivals celebrated in the fall, like those in the spring, were rooted in Israel's history. But the fulfillment still to come for these will be a glorious day for all of us. When we look at the seven of them together and we realize the first four were completed at the first coming of Christ, we stand in the middle, and the final three will be ultimately fulfilled at his second coming. For the people doing life with God, there is a time that God has already appointed. The scriptures describe the second coming of Christ in a way that let us know it's imminent, could be near any time. The trumpet will sound. Sin's impact will be permanently done away with. And you and I will be ushered in to our permanent home. Paul in 1 Thessalonians describes it this way. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. That's life with God.